Thank you, Adam, and good evening, everyone. It is a perilous thing to allow a speaker up at quarter past seven, but do not be alarmed. Uh, we will finish early tonight. Growing old is a weird experience, and it's something that young people will not understand. When I was 17, I wrote myself a letter to be opened when I was 25. It began with the words, I suspect you have become what you once despised. There was simply no end to my pretentiousness as a teenager. I think sometimes when I think about growing old, I, I don't actually feel any different from when I was 18. I laugh at the same things. I'm enthused by the same things. But it's dawned on me recently that I now view life from a different perspective. There's a lot of potentialities that have evaporated away or have been actualized. And I can look back upon choices I made in life with a sort of wistful resignation. The photo on the screen is one of a series created by a photographer called Tom Hussey. And it shows an old man looking into a mirror and seeing himself as a young soldier. There's an affectionate smile on the old man's face as he recognizes the boy he had been many years earlier. The image in the mirror looks more powerful, more certain than the older man who looks back at him. But the older man's gentle smile tells us that the certainties of youth will get knocked away by years of real life. Tonight we are going to see King David look into a mirror like that. We're going to consider two poems that he wrote that are placed at the end of 2 Samuel. The first was written, I think, when he was a much younger man, and the second was written as his very last formal words. They probably would have been read out at his funeral. So David will stare at himself in the mirror of time. We are approaching the very end of 2 Samuel. Can I just say, I am so pleased with this slide. It is a wonder of graphic design. Um, and this final section that we're studying, which starts really in chapter 21 through, through to 24, is regarded by many commentators as a sort of appendix. Because the material isn't obviously coherent, and one of the reasons why that is so is because the incidents are not always chronological. But in closer examination, I think we can see it's arranged in a symmetrical way as my marvelous diagram shows. Because tonight we consider the inner ring of the diagram found in chapter 22 and the first half of 23. It's here we find these two poems. The first one is a psalm. You can actually find this psalm in the book of Psalms. It's number 18. And the second poem is an oracle. It's a prophecy which David makes in his last ever public statement. On either side of those two poems, we find descriptions of David's fighting men and how they supported him. And in the outer ring, in chapters 21 and 24, we see how the actions of a king can have devastating impacts on thousands of ordinary people. In chapter 21, it was Saul's brutal uh, and cynical treatment of the Gibeonites that led to God's judgment. David had to make atonement for his predecessor's sin. But in 24, as we shall see next week, it's David himself who commits a wrong that leads to thousands and thousands of ordinary people dying. Now, the only real purpose of this ring diagram is to make the point that the historian wrote First and Second Samuel, um, who wrote it, has chosen to end his work with an epilogue that is not necessarily chronological. The flashback to Saul's sin, the old war stories of David's mighty men, are evidence of that. And I'm now going to argue tonight that the first poem, the psalm we find in chapter 22, is another flashback. I think it was written shortly after David had been crowned as king. 
when the Ammonites had been overcome. So sometime after God had made his great covenant with David's house, but before David had committed his terrible sin with Bathsheba. Let's just do a little bit of textual work to convince you of that thesis. First, we see from verse 1, if you have the text in front of you, chapter 22, verse 1, that David wrote and performed this musical poem on the day that God delivered him from Saul and all his enemies. Well, that was pretty early on. Then in verse 30, we read, For by you I can turn against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. The word translated as troop is really unusual. It's used of the raiding party of Amalekites David destroys at the end of 1 Samuel. And the scaling of the wall probably refers to that moment when David climbed up the water shaft to capture Jerusalem. So as we shall see, the psalm focuses on David's near-death experiences. And those near-death experiences nearly all happened during his time as an outlaw when he was being hounded by Saul's armies. And perhaps most tellingly of all, there is no hint in this psalm of David's moral failings, the failures that led to the mayhem and disaster we've been watching all through 2 Samuel. So for all those reasons, I think it reasonable to see the psalm in chapter 22 as a portrait of the young King David and the oracle in chapter 23 as a picture of the old King David. The two poems stare at each other in the mirror of time. So let's now turn to God's word and read the first 20 verses of the psalm recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 22. You'll see from the structure in the screen, next slide, Ruben. <clears throat> We're back to business as usual. Uh, you'll see from the structure on the screen that the psalm has two main sections connected by a central bridge. And in the first section, which we're now about to read, God rescues a helpless man. In the final section, God raises up a warrior king. But let's read now the first 20 verses of chapter 22. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. 
The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. As we progress in this study, we shall see that there are some important differences between the poem written by the young king and the one written by the old king. But there are some really interesting ideas that do not change with time and experience. And the most important is that in both places, God is David's rock. As a young man, David had endured the jealousy of his brothers. He had endured the paranoid delusions of Saul. Even the love of his, Michael, of his wife, Michael, was shown to be a fickle thing. She ended up despising him. But now I think of him as an old man. His own son, Absalom, had wanted him dead. David had endured the betrayal of Ahithophel, the callous brutality of Joab, the disloyalty of all the tribes of Israel. And his one true friend, Jonathan, had died years earlier. Just about everyone had let David down. And yet he still stood on the rock, stood on the unchanging constancy of a God who does not shift like shadows on a wall. One of my favorite hymns is called Abide With Me. And one line says this, change and decay in all around I see. Oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. One of the greatest blessings of the Christian life is that we get to stand on a rock. For the atheist, life is a continual flux of events, events governed by power struggles and chance. Perhaps you're listening to me now and your life has spun out of control because of some political scheming or some terrible betrayal. Well, you can know David's rock for yourself. Instead of seeing God as some remote, disapproving intelligence, you can know him as a fortress, a place of refuge, a shield, a source of strength, a savior. So often preachers give the impression that God is against us. God is for you. He is the only one who will never let you down. This first section of David's psalm is divided into three parts, as you can see. In verses four to seven, we hear a helpless man cry out to God, and God hears him. Then in verses 8 to 16, those really dramatic ones, God intervenes and comes to fight for David. And then in 17 to 20, we see God rescue David from enemies too strong for any man to fight. So in part one, David's life is in mortal danger. He is staring death in the face. And he describes the primordial power of death using the language of a drowning man. Torrents come sweeping over him. He becomes ensnared by the cords of death. He is helpless at the mercy of forces too strong for him to overcome. But behind the forces of nature, there is the creator God. What a comfort it is to reflect on that truth. Behind the earthquake or the cancer cell or the plaque that builds up in the brain, behind every terrifying force of nature, there is the personal being who controls them all. 
He may be in heaven, but he can hear our feeblest cry for help. Verses 8 through 16 trigger a specific memory for me. They record in really dramatic, poetic language how God intervenes. We'll see where all that imagery comes from in a minute, but on the surface of the text, there is this picture of an immensely powerful ally who's been stirred to anger by the foe which has rendered us helpless. In May 2004, as many of you know, my wife Ruth called me at work, told me to come home, and she told me that she had been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. The news was unimaginably witty and intimidating. It made us feel small and vulnerable. We were at the mercy of forces too powerful for us to handle. And in those moments, Ruth turned to this psalm. And we read together of a God whose entry on stage caused physical reality to quake and rock. David describes a God who is stern and implacable, a God who enters like a terrifying storm onto the scene. And there are moments in life, my friend, when we need a God like that, a hallmark God, a sort of absent-minded grandfather who peers benignly at us over gold-rimmed glasses and hands us a fox's glassier mint. A God like that is no use when we're facing death. On that fateful night way back in 2004, for the first time in my life, I prayed to God as my creator. There is immense comfort in knowing that God is in a different category from all his creation. So even death must quake when the creator walks onto the stage. Now, having said all that, we need to approach these verses with great care. Some critical scholars have portrayed them, or loved to portray them, as a sort of pagan storm god. David is showing Yahweh as a Canaanite would show us God, they say. Well, that is untrue. So we need to pick up all the illusions that David is making here. He isn't depicting God as some fire-breathing dragon. His poetic mind has taken him back to Moses' description of God uh, in the Exodus, descending on Mount Sinai with smoke and fire and thunder. And then his mind focuses in on that dramatic moment that we call the parting of the Red Sea. In the original Hebrew in this psalm, David describes his predicament as being in a narrow place. He feels trapped, just as the children of Israel were trapped between the devil and the deep red sea hundreds of years earlier. But now recall what happened. God moved to protect his people. The great terrifying pillar of cloud and fire moved through the people so that it stood in between them and Pharaoh's armies. And the hurricane force wind from the east started to cause the waters to pile up on either side of a pathway through the sea. The seafloor was exposed. The wind must have caused the pillar of cloud to fire and of, of cloud and fire to roil and swirl like a great column of smoke. I sometimes imagine the Israelites huddled together as this storm of cloud and fire lit up the night sky. They were terrified, of course, but I'm sure at least one of them said, "If this is scaring the life out of us, think what it's doing to the soldiers in Pharaoh's army." So read through verses 8 through 16 again in your own time, and you'll see that David is not describing some Canaanite storm god. He's using the story of the Exodus to describe his own rescue. And he concludes that rescue story in verses 17 through 20 by describing how God plucked him out of the waters 
and brought him to a spacious and pleasant place. Actually, God did that once, literally. There's a man called Peter. He once tried to walk on water. He became frightened and cried out to Jesus to rescue him. And God incarnate reached down and lifted him out of the water. In that moment, we witness God in Christ rescue a helpless man. Now, for the sake of time, we're only going to consider one of the three parts in the second section of the psalm. The emphasis in this second part isn't on rescuing a helpless person. It describes how God raises up David and makes him into a victorious warrior king. So, compare the two sections. In section one, God fights for David. But in section two, he fights in partnership with David, alongside him. In the first section, David was rescued from his enemies. But in section two, God defeats David's enemies. So let's now read uh, verses 33 to 37. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. It's crucial that the young adults in the room appreciate the balance of this psalm. Yes, it is fantastic that we have been rescued from our helpless estate by God, but that is only half the story. The second movement in the psalm is about how God raises you up to become victorious warriors. Now, please don't think I'm just appealing to the warrior instinct in the young men here tonight. A few months ago, when Amazon Prime released their Lord of the Rings series, Ollie Neal persuaded me to watch a couple of the episodes. I could make no sense of the accents used by the Harfoots. They spoke in a half-Irish, half-Jamaican accent that made my brain crash, so I gave up. But there was one character that did appeal to me. Galadriel, one of the greatest of the elves, was the Lady of the Woods. She's brave and wise, a real warrior, standing there in her silver armor. Well, my young sister, perhaps the world doesn't take very much notice of you, but in God's eyes, you are a Galadriel. (coughs) Excuse me. A noble warrior who fights for the honor of her king. My generation has not done a good job in training you to become spiritual warriors. Too many of us hid away, hoping we could have a happy little life without having to worry about the gathering storm, a storm in the culture around us. But those of you under 35 here tonight simply do not have that option. You will have to fight. You will have to display courage and wisdom and honor. And if you want to catch a glimpse of how you must fight, then look at the woman called Kate Forbes. As many of you will know, Kate Forbes is one of three candidates to become leader of the Scottish National Party, following the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon. Unlike her competitors, Forbes is an intelligent, substantial woman. But she happens to be a Bible-believing Christian. In the last few days, she has stood under a tsunami of scorn and ridicule. LGBT activists have bleated that they don't feel safe 
because a potential political leader holds orthodox Christian views. Everyone willfully ignores the truth that it was Christianity which gave the world the revolutionary idea that all human beings have innate and equal moral worth. It was that Christian idea that led to the very idea of human rights in the first place. Thank God for Christian politicians whose actions in the public square were motivated by their Christian beliefs. Think of Wilberforce's campaign to end slavery or Lord Shaftesbury's legislation to protect children and women in the workplace. We need to fight in the realm of ideas against this pathetic myth of a neutral public square. Everyone has a worldview, not just religious people. Everyone. The activists who are trying to ban Christian ideas from politics are the very people who are doing their best to impose neo-Marxist ideas on society. There is no such thing as a neutral public square. Everyone brings their beliefs to the table. Uh, meanwhile, back at Second Samuel. <clears throat> I feel so much better having said that. We need a generation of Christian warriors. Now, I'm not urging you all to go into politics like Kate Forbes. In fact, my instinct is to warn you against such a career move. But we need Galadriels who will build Christian homes, who build the armor of God around their children, who build up the local church, provide wholesome environments for our children and young people to grow in. And if that is your goal, then verses 33 to 37 are of critical importance because they explain that God will develop you, train you, strengthen you. No one becomes a warrior by the wave of a magic wand. He trains our feet so that we will not stumble, even in difficult terrain. He trains our hands for war. He strengthens our arms. He teaches us how to use a shield. Now, all these military metaphors apply to how we grow and learn as disciples. But really all I want to do in this section of the study is fire your ambition. Set a blaze of light in your heart to become a warrior who fights for the honor of your king. So we have thought about the balance of this psalm. We are rescued from our helpless estate by God. But then on the other side of the coin, we're raised up to be victorious warriors. Now before we leave chapter 22, let's just glance at the central bridge. Uh, we'll just read verses 21 to 26. David says, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. These verses make me really, really sad. When David wrote them, he was being completely sincere. Until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David hardly puts a foot wrong. From his boyhood adventure with Goliath, through those tough years as an outlaw, and the early days of his kingship, David is almost blameless. He did indeed keep the ways of the Lord. He didn't turn from God's decrees. He was largely blameless before the Lord. He kept himself from sin. Now, let's not lose the teaching point that lies on the surface of these words. The blessing of a clean conscience. If you have a clean conscience, I don't mean that you're sinless or perfect in every sense, of course, but if your character is largely pristine, then you are truly blessed. 
and pray that your hands will remain clean until you get home to heaven. With incredible sadness, however, we had to watch as David lost that pristine cleanness. He abused his power with the innocent Bathsheba. Then, in an attempt to cover up his adultery, he had her husband, the noble Uriah, killed. And that moral failure caused him to lose all moral authority with his own family. The story of 2 Samuel is the unfolding of the catastrophic consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. It ended up splitting the kingdom with Absalom's rebellion. With that sad story ringing in our ears, let's now turn to the second poem, the poem written by the old King David. Good man. It's only seven verses long, but as you can see from the screen, it also has two main sections connected by a central bridge. So let's read this oracle together. Second Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the singer of Israel's songs, is a more literal translation. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. The first thing we notice is, is that this poem is quieter, less exuberant, much less overt crushing of enemies. In the first two verses, the elderly David introduces himself. And it is such a curious introduction. He doesn't even call himself king. Now remember, this poem would probably have been read out at his funeral. And yet Israel's greatest king refers to himself as David, son of Jesse. As he says in the second clause, he's just a man. Yes, a man who's been given an exalted role, but still just a man. David, it seems to me, is beginning to realize that his greatest role was to be the singer of Israel's songs. In other words, to be the man used by the Spirit of God to communicate God's word to us. And it is as the man through whom God speaks that David now writes. The central bridge, the heart of the poem, is found in verses 3 and 4. And all David is doing here is simply relaying a message from God. But it is a message that David's long life had helped him understand. David's reign as king had been complex and messy. His own moral failures, the sheer nastiness of the people around him, had left a legacy of failure and bitterness as well as success. And at the end of his life, he gains this profound insight. And I think it's an insight that sums up what the whole of First and Second Samuel have been about. God speaks and says, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. David knew all too well, he was not that ruler. God was looking forward to a perfect ruler, 
one who would rule over all mankind, not just Israel. And his perfect character would enlighten the people he would govern. His reign would be so wise and righteous that ordinary people would start to flourish and bloom. Think about a piece of parched grass, brown and drying. But then comes the refreshing rain and sunlight. And gradually the grass becomes lush and green once more. That's what good governance can do for ordinary people. This has been the historian's concern in both 1 and 2 Samuel. How can a society be created that is governed perfectly, one that will be stable and wholesome forever and ever? Saul was a disaster. And David, although he did an enormous amount of good, was not perfect either. In fact, the whole dynasty looked to be in a bit of trouble. But this article points us to a different David, the last David, who would one day be given the title deeds of the universe. In Revelation chapter 5, John gets a vision of the risen Christ, and the angel says to him, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I think it's that realization which explains another curious feature of this poem. David is completely calm in the face of death. And think back to his dramatic horror of dying in the previous poem. But now he actually is standing at death's door. But we find him quietly confident that God's plan of salvation is inexorable. He has an everlasting and eternal covenant with God. It's secure in every part. So the promises given way back and God gave him back in chapter 7 are secure. Now, not everyone will enjoy life in that eternal kingdom. People who reject life, who prefer to inflict damage and hurt, will be excluded. You can make parched grass grow and become luscious, but all you can do with thorns is burn them. The historian has put these two poems together, like that photo by Tom Hussey. The young king and the old king have looked at each other through the mirror of time. But to what purpose? Is the historian simply being ironic by placing this psalm at the end of his book? Does he want us to leave the study with the feeling that David's youthful passion and innocence was always doomed to collapse in moral failure? Is that the way that every story goes? Well, I don't think the historian is remotely interested in irony. He's just reminded us that David was a poet. And it isn't just the oracles in chapter 23 that gives us a poetic image of the righteous ruler. It turns out that that long psalm in chapter 22 has a deeper meaning too. So let's go back to it as we close. The New Testament quotes this psalm and applies it to our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it on the New Testament's authority that this psalm is messianic. So let's just walk through its main contours again as we close in the light of the New Testament. We see Jesus ensnared by the coils of Sheol. He has gone under the waters of death. But then God comes in awful, terrible majesty and raises Jesus up. Ephesians talks of God exerting mighty strength to raise Jesus up, not just out of death, but up through the serried ranks of spiritual intelligences and authorities, raising him to the very right hand of God. But that's not the end of the story. Unlike David, our Lord's hands were not only temporarily clean. Throughout his perfect life, Jesus didn't fail once, not a single stumble. And he has become heaven's victorious warrior king. 
One day he will put all his enemies down and begin his reign as the righteous ruler of all mankind. So we're done. God's plan of salvation is complicated, multifaceted. There's more to it than each of us receiving forgiveness. God has to build a kingdom where good governance will allow us to flourish and not be ruined by poor leadership. And so one great dimension of the Lord Jesus' work is his ability to govern, to take the title deeds of the universe and rule it with justice and mercy and righteousness. Without that dimension to his work, heaven would collapse into hell. These ancient books of Samuel have given us an insight into the problem space that Christ, as righteous ruler, must solve. And it gives us grounds to worship him. And that's what we're going to do now in our final hymn. And then I shall close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, at the close of this service, we want to bring three specific groups before you. We pray, first of all, for those in the room who may be facing serious illness or death, and they feel the ensnaring cords of shell around their feet. We pray, Father, that they would know you as their rock and refuge, that like David as an old man, they can rest in the security of an eternal covenant. And we say with the Apostle Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we pray for those who are scared tonight that you will comfort them, strengthen them, and give them a sense of security. And then, Father, we pray for the young adults in this room. We thank you that so many of them are saved. They have been rescued and lifted out of the waters by your mighty hand. But we thank you that you're transforming them into warriors who will serve the honor of their king. And so we pray that you would raise up a generation of young men and women who will stand for Christ, who will put on the armor of God, and who will be able to uh, uh, engage with the ideologies of this culture, fight in the realm of ideas, wrestle with spiritual powers and principalities and prayer, and in so doing, uh, bring honor to their king. And then, Father, we pray for those of us who are older, who look back over our lives, stare into the mirror, remember ourselves as young men and women. And many of us, Lord, have to admit that there have been moral failures, some big, some small, perhaps. But we thank you, Father, like David. We can rest quietly in the eternal covenant that although we have failed, Christ has not that he is a righteous ruler who will establish an eternal kingdom. And so we pray you would comfort us with that and help us to serve out the rest of our days with honor and nobility and energy. So we commit ourselves to you now, giving you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.